you're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. There's certainly a push-pull going on right now. There's those of us who are feeling the increased warmth and sense of freedom and, and yes, momentum uh, to getting back our lives. And then there are bureaucrats and naysayers and people who have gotten either addicted to this new lifestyle in some way of remote work from home or addicted to the control that they've had over so much of the population. This is going to continue to play out. This is a major challenge that we have in our society, and I want us to be very clear about what we're facing. We're going to get into that today. I also want you to be clear about the challenge of privacy online and making sure that you aren't being tracked constantly. Everything you do, every click, you know that you can't trust big tech anymore. That's for sure. Remember when Google used to say, don't be evil? Uh, We've seen what they actually intend to do with your data, with shutting you down, with interfering in a presidential election. I mean, the stuff that big tech has been up to really has broken whatever faith we had in them in the past. And that's why I don't want you getting tracked all the time. You need to think of a, of a VPN, a virtual private network, as a necessary tool in your cyber defense, okay? You have to have it. It's not a, a sort of kind of maybe thing. Otherwise, everything you do is being tracked, and who knows what they're going to do with that data. When I switch on ExpressVPN on my computer or phone, my address is masked by a VPN server. That's right. My IP address isn't something that they can just track the same way. This is so straightforward. You can do it on up to five devices simultaneously. Multiple users on your network can stay safe with a single subscription. You need to have this. Remember back in the day, we're all worried about getting a virus on our computer. You had all these virus protection programs or else your computer might just crap out on you. You need a VPN given how much tracking and surveillance there is out there of you. So stop handing over your data to big tech companies. Go to the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck to get three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. Three months free when you go expressvpn.com slash buck. Right now, and learn more about this. You need to have this. I've got it. You need to have this on your devices too. What have we learned about the pandemic? What have we seen at this point that has changed our perception of the kind of relationship that we have with our government that has made us think differently about whether we can trust the experts and medical community. This is a fascinating, terrifying tale in so many ways. The World Health Organization 12 months today declared that this was an official pandemic, a global pandemic, in fact, the first real one that we have had since the Spanish influenza of over 100 years ago. So this was a once in a century phenomenon, and we've been through a lot, all of us, this whole country, the whole world, in fact. And I know that right now we're we're just beginning to feel like we've got the momentum on our side and we're getting past this. And that's absolutely the correct mindset. I mean, if you've made it to this point and and you haven't uh, had, especially for anybody who hasn't had a really serious bout with the disease themselves or god forbid lost somebody that they know or or lost a loved one to this you know consider yourself lucky at this point because it has ravaged this country it's gone all over the world and it's a reminder of so many things the the biggest lesson for me of the pandemic the single biggest lesson if i had to pick one is the reminder 
that you are in control of your destiny or else you will give up your freedom, right? There, there is no other choice. It's on you. It's on you how much you are willing to protect yourself, how much you're willing to make decisions about your health and your future. Uh, the government cannot protect you the way that we, we, so many people want to believe they can. The government is incapable of making the kinds of policy decisions about public health that will keep everybody safe. And if you make that trade-off, if you're willing to say to them, sure, I'll give up my freedom in exchange for safety from a virus, it will be abused. And we have been through a greater attack on basic freedom and liberty this year than we've ever seen in my lifetime in America. That is what has happened. There are a lot of people who are self-deluded about this. There are a lot of people who don't want to think that that is the case. But if you look around and see, we shut down businesses on the whims of politicians for months on end, bankrupted them. We told landlords, sorry, you can't collect rent or evict somebody because of the pandemic. And then they end up defaulting to the bank. We told people that they couldn't see loved ones. They couldn't hug their grandchildren. They couldn't go out and be with their fellow human beings. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't protest government policies against this. When you start to look at what was normalized at different points in this and what people were willing to accept, I never thought it would get to this point in America, at least not this easily. For this kind of uh, infringement, this degree of infringements on our freedom, I, I assumed there would be a greater pushback that America... You know, the land of the free, home of the brave, the don't tread on me country, the we stand up for our rights, give me liberty or give me death. Those for the first time in my lifetime felt like empty slogans a lot of the time. That was the takeaway that I think we, we all would have to have from this, depending on where you are. I know some people suffered much more than others from this. I know there were some challenges that as we look at them, it was hard to know exactly how we should have handled it at the time. But can anyone look at this and say that our leadership and our government was on it? They did a, they did a good job. I, I understand that we want to point to the vaccine. The vaccine is private sector pharmaceutical companies, folks, operating under the profit motive. Yes, backstopped by the federal government through Operation Warp Speed under the Trump administration. But look at how many times we were told things that were conflicting in terms of the advice, in terms of the prescriptions. Look at how often we were silenced on an issue of essential public concern, right? We were told, don't question the experts. Do this or else. You have no choice. They use the force of government and the state to tell you how far away physically you could be from other human beings. The government became comfortable telling you that they will fine you or even imprison you if you do not wear a covering over your nose and your mouth when you're in public at all times. I... I sit here and I think, how could anyone view that the trade off that, that that was made that we were forced to make here and think that it was anything other than disastrous? Were the policies that were inflicted on us successful? Does anyone really believe that we had a successful response to this virus as a country? You have over 500,000 dead, 530,000 last count that I saw. I don't think anyone can say that this was something where we'd say we did uh, we did all that was required to defeat it but then again we did all they said was required and it didn't work so what does that tell us 
It means that all along there were things they didn't know they wouldn't be honest about. And it means that if you believe the government will not take into its uh, into its hands almost unlimited power, if you give it the opportunity, you're just not paying attention. We should never have been in this position. The government does not have the right to do the thing. And by the way, I don't even care about the Constitution. Nobody has the right to tell you that you have to put a mask on outside all the time. Nobody has the right to do that. It's just the basic human dignity thing. That's that's absurd. This is crazy. It's not a limited time and place restriction saying all the time, everywhere you're outside, you have to do this because, you know, mask mandates, they had outdoor mask mandates in places, too. And so when I say the right, this is this is wrong. This is too much power for the government to have. And, and notice how they kept changing the justifications as they went along to uh, or they, they kept changing the science so that they would have the justifications to make whatever modifications to policy they felt like just in time. You know, it, it was like they had started some kind of a religion and they got, you know, the, mo- the moment they needed it, there was some revelation that told them, yeah, whatever Fauci wants you to do, that's what you're supposed to do. Whatever Fauci declares as the smart thing, that comes from the science or the data. We were led like sheep into policies that anybody who's actually looking at the numbers would have to say this was at a minimum ineffective and perhaps even counterproductive. It didn't give us the benefits we were promised, and it certainly caused a lot of additional uh, challenges and and downside. And I think that this was what cost uh, this is what cost the Trump administration reelection. I think that this is why you now have Joe Biden doddering around, mumbling to himself, all because of a global pandemic. You just never know what life is going to throw at you, do you? Everyone says we could have prepared for this. We actually did have a lot of preparations for pandemics going on at the CDC, which we've now seen is, in my opinion, a partisan abomination. The place is as atrocious, so much incompetence and just bureaucratic quizzling back and forth on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, hyper cautious, but also oddly always siding with the Democrats. Isn't that interesting uh, that the CDC is, is not what many people thought it was beforehand, but there's no real way to prepare a society for this. This was a uh, this was a stress test of our freedoms, what we're willing to endure, what we will put up with from our government overlords. And it didn't go well. I mean, our response it didn't go well in the age of mass media. Mass hysteria has become far too easy uh, to utilize, to, to weaponize even for political purposes. You have people now they're even saying they're going to keep doing even after they're vaccinated, their whole family's vaccinated. They're going to keep all the measures in place, going to keep all the measures in place. This is panic. This is hysteria. This is it's sad and absurd. And I wouldn't care, except they want you to do that as well. And there will be people out there who continue to demand this. There will be politicians. There will be uh, there will be government, state and local that continue to inflict this madness upon people because they can't get a grip on their emotions and understand that life comes with risk. There is no risk-free existence. And if you think the government can take all risk out of your day-to-day, you are just inviting tyranny. That is what we saw. Your destiny is in your hands. You, you hand it to anyone else at your peril. And, and in a sense, the destiny is still in your hands because you've made the decision to let somebody, it's only because you let them that they're able to get away with this. It's only because you've handed over authority over your own life to some external force 
that you're not able to push back and tell them to stop. Tell them that there are lines that they shall not cross. I do think we're heading into a better place now. I think that things are going to improve pretty dramatically over the next three to six months. But I I want you to remember that there are those who would not stand up for freedom during this. There are those who lied to you and would never admit it. And there are people who have become, they've gotten a taste of the power that they have to silence anyone and make anyone do whatever they say. And they want that to stay as long as possible. And they want it back if they lose it. You've seen this monster now of absolute power in a way you never believed would be possible in America, at least not without fighting some kind of war, right? You've seen what it looks like, and now we have to keep it at bay. And the Democrats have not let this go. They haven't decided all of a sudden they're going to be reasonable and they don't want all this power. No, in fact, they view this, I think, as the, uh, the precursor, the justification for future infringements upon liberty and freedom. And that's why we have to be on guard. The Biden administration loves using a crisis as an opportunity And this is an ongoing crisis, whether the numbers actually support that or not in the future. They're going to say it could always come back. Do what we say. There could be another one. Do what we say. California, we're not going to come crawling back. We will roar back. You know, when this pandemic ends and it will end soon, we're not going to go back to normal because I think we all agree. Normal was never good enough. You know, normal accepts inequity. That's why Latinos are dying from COVID at a higher rate than any other racial or ethnic group. And while essential workers' wages aren't enough for them to afford the essentials, and why mothers, mothers have been leaving the workforce in staggering numbers. Look, our eyes are are wide open to what's wrong. And so our journey back must also be a path to close those inequities. There is no economic recovery, no economic recovery without economic justice. Not returning to normal. Now, I know the context in which he said that. I I understand that Gavin Newsom, who's trying to cling to his job as governor of California, is is doing his best here. And he's trying to appeal to his base and to Democrats in the loony left state of California. But that's a broader sentiment. And, you know, they have this one. They don't want to go back to normal. No, of course not. In fact, the covid bill, as we've seen, isn't really a covid bill. It's a spend two trillion dollars on whatever the Democrats want for the transformation of our society bill. It is a progressive bill by their by their own admission. Now, now that it's done, you'll notice once they've gotten it passed, they're willing to say things that are far more honest than what they had previously said about this. Now we see ourselves being told, oh, that's right. We're getting everything we want in this process as Democrats. You know, sorry, Republicans. You're getting steamrolled. There was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal calling it the progressive steamroller. That's what's happening right now. Get out of the way. They're going to do it their way. Or you can go take a long walk off a short pier. They don't care. There's no bipartisanship. It doesn't matter that half the country really disagrees with some of the things that Joe Biden's doing. Not not a little bit. Disagrees a lot. And the border is the best example of, of what a crisis under Democrat leadership looks like. This is entirely because of their ideological positions on the border. That's why we have a crisis right now. This is because they've changed policies. They've changed enforcement priorities. Democrats just want whoever wants to come here from 
from all over the world, but mostly from Central America. They just show up and the Democrats will make sure they're processed and into the country as quickly as possible. That's how they really feel. You won't hear any Democrats say, hold on a second. We, we have too many people coming. This is not through our legal process. This is this is making a mockery of our actual immigration system. None of them say that. No, their problem with what's going on is just that we don't have enough personnel to you know, take down the names and, and, and basic data of people coming across the border so we can make sure that when they're in the interior, you know, they can sign up for you know, welfare benefits and get driver's licenses and in-state tuition and all these things. That's, they just want the processing to be smoother. They don't want it to stop. I mean, this is a big difference. That's why the Democrats have to just lie about this because the, the, the base of the Democrat Party is all about it. I mean, 30% of the country roughly just wants us to have an open border. All right. The the Democrat left on the coasts and in the major cities, you know, the deep blue parts of the country, they just believe let's just go for it. Open border, whether they say so or not. That's how they really feel. But something like 60 percent of the country really doesn't want our immigration system to cease to actually exist. Right? They, they think that we should have some rules, some enforcement. You know, you should come here with respect to U.S. laws. So this is why Democrats are doing something and lying about what they're doing. Kind of like the covid bill, right? They call it a covid bill. And then as soon as it passes, what do they tell you? Well, this is actually a progressive steamroller. This is actually meant to get our priorities done. And anybody who challenges it is opposed to fourteen hundred dollar checks for Americans. That's what they say. Just like with with Obamacare, if you opposed Obamacare, there's so many parallels. This is all out of the Obama Alinsky playbook. There are so many parallels. What do they say if you had a problem with Obamacare? What was the, the answer they would give you? Oh, you don't want people with pre-existing conditions to get health care? That was it. They shut you down with that every time. Well, if that was all Obamacare was about, why was it a couple thousand pages long? Why was it such a, an enormous effort to get it passed involving so many different special interests and carve outs and medical device taxes, all the different things? If it was just about that, well, it wasn't just about that. But that was the sweetener, you see. Well, the, really, that was the, the cloak of invulnerability, too. It was appealing, but it also meant that nobody could attack it. Same thing with this uh, COVID relief bill. If you think that it's a problem that Democrats are just sloshing around hundreds of billions of dollars to cities that have poorly managed finances, that are running welfare states on their own that they shouldn't, to you know, teachers unions, to you name it. If you got a problem with any of that, why don't you want fourteen hundred dollar checks to go to Americans who need it? I mean, Republicans under Trump are talking about a two thousand dollar check. Clearly, we don't have a problem with the check going to people to help them out during this difficult financial time. But that's the way the propaganda works. The leveraging of this crisis is really just beginning now. As I've been telling you. Even when we get to a point where the numbers are very low, as, as Fauci says, you know, under 10,000 is kind of his benchmark for where we have really low numbers of COVID and we don't have to worry anymore. Even when we get to that point uh, with Fauci uh, or with, with our COVID cases, they're going to say, well, now we need to do a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending. Now we need to do a trillion dollars of, you know, whatever it may be, climate change, renovation of every building and every power plant in the country don't you see that that's what happens after this they use covid recovery as the launch pad for whatever transformational policies they want to get through without having an honest discussion with the american people about what they're really doing 
They just they, they couch it all in covid relief. So for the next the next 12 months, at least get ready for that. Anything Joe Biden says needs to get done. It's we need to do this because we suffered so horribly from the pandemic. It becomes an emotional appeal that if you have any problem with, if you challenge at all. They will trash you for not wanting Americans to get money. They will say that you don't care. You're heartless. You know, as if we didn't all suffer through the covid pandemic, as if we weren't all honestly traumatized. We've we've gone through a national trauma with this whole thing, the separation from family and friends and loved ones and and our our colleagues and everything that we've been through. And it's going to take some time to process this. But the damaged psyche of the American people for for those of us who are honorable, we're all just trying to say we should come together and get back on our feet and, and you know, take care of each other as Americans in, in our own communities, in our own ways, however we can. The Democrats are saying, oh, you've got a damaged psyche. Let's exploit that. That's how they view this. This is a moment for exploitation at the national level. On this occasion, and I think I can safely say, and I've said this to my colleagues in the House on the Democratic side, this is the most consequential legislation that many of us will ever be a party to who knows what the future may bring but nonetheless on this day we celebrate because we are honoring a promise made by our president and as we join with him in promising that help is on the way the most consequential piece of legislation in our lifetime nancy pelosi says say what you will about pelosi and i say a lot This woman understands the raw exercise of power. She is thrilled that they got this through. And I got to say, she was willing to let Americans suffer by the millions. She was willing to play the delay games at the cost of lots of misery all across the nation because we should have gotten covid relief done. We got it done five times, you know, before Democrats had control in Congress and the White House. But we we should have had it. in August, but she she said no. She wanted to just build it all up and then expend all of their political capital and your actual capital, two trillion dollars of it, in this massive bill that she says is the most consequential in our lifetimes. I, I know that that should send a little bit of a chill down your spine. Pelosi's that excited about this. Think about how this will strengthen the Democrat political machinery, the the mechanisms of control over your life in many different ways and what this what this looks like for them going into the midterms. They're assuming that this amount of spending is going to strengthen their hand. That's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. Uh, It depends on what the economy does. But this enormous amount of spending, I'm really worried that you're going to start to see real interest rates will rise. Inflation will start to, to tick up. And governments are once inflation gets beyond their control. Guess what? It's beyond their control. There's not a whole lot they're going to be able to do. And that is that is so uh, damaging for particularly people that are wage earners in the middle class. So we'll see what this what this does. We'll see how this plays out with the economy. Um, I, I think that it's going to work out very. I mean, if you want to understand the trajectory of the Biden administration, that the one that the, what is what is its trajectory right now? 
Just look at the first four years of the Obama administration. Came in during a crisis, you know, stinks to be you Republicans. We're in charge. Shut up. Get out of the way. They pass a trillion dollars. They go for Obamacare. Now you you see what's going on right now. They have a, a covid pandemic as the crisis. They're passing two trillion dollars of stimulus spending. Only nine percent of it actually has anything to do with covid vaccines and, and actual covid fighting. And guess what the next move is going to be? Amnesty. That's what that's what's going to happen. This is why the, the border, they're not going to stop this. And you know what they're going to say? They're going to they're going to get Republicans. They're going to twist their arms. They got the media all in their pocket and they're going to get Republicans to say, uh, you know what? We can't. St- what are we really going to do, guys? Let's just we'll, we'll make a deal with the Democrats that will go for a pathway to legalization. We won't call it citizenship and we'll do it in exchange for aggressive enforcement mechanisms at our southern border, which are never going to happen. But it'll be the it'll be the gang of eight situation all over again, except even more illegals in the country, which means even more political weight to what they want. That's what we're facing right now. That's what's underway. And if you have a problem with it, remember how I told you about it just it all lines up. I mean, it, it really is. We're in the deja vu administration. Right. We've seen all this before. If you were opposed to Obamacare, you didn't want people with pre-existing conditions, people with actual pre-existing conditions. I mean, real ones that make them uninsurable were less than one percent of the healthcare market. We could have dealt with that completely separately from all this other. We could. But no, it was very effective. And look, they outmaneuvered Republicans on that. They got to it first. Republicans should have dealt with that, too, because there is an emotional pull. There is a, a moral, a moral case for why we need to make sure that if somebody has some uh, some, you know, issue at, at uh, of their health that they're born with or that they have some terrible disease they come down with, that they can't be pushed out of the insurance market, bankrupted and ruined. Right. And, and the way insurance companies were, were sometimes throwing people off and essentially just protecting their profits at the expense of, of, of decency in a dishonest way that needed to be dealt with wasn't dealt with. We still don't really know what the Republican health care plan is. I'm just going to say it. We, we hear a lot about free markets and blah, blah, blah. But OK, we didn't get to repeal and replace. Hey, look, this is team honesty here on the Buck Sexton show. You know, you, you know, there'll be other people that are still the, they're just desperately chasing after the Trump train. Now, everything Trump did was amazing. Everything that's not there was a great Trump stuff. There were shortcomings. There were misses. OK, that's obviously what really happened but there are people i know who are just trump i love it chase the train you know I'm, but i want to get back on the trump train as soon as i can because i don't really have anything to say they don't really stand for anything there are a lot of grifters in trump world we all know that too you know that i know that now we have to be the opposition and it's not enough to just say you know oh trump released some statement from mar-a-lago and we're all gonna repeat that on air and, and suggest that that somehow is enough no we have to we have to make these arguments. We have to stare reality in the face here and, and convince 51 percent of our fellow Americans in the electorate that there's a better way. There's a better choice or, you know, 50.001, whatever we got to do, but got to get an advantage. And that's our work between now and the midterms. We we have a mission here, friends. We have a quest we are on. This isn't just all you know, talking about this stuff for the sake of you know intellectual discourse. No, we're trying to get power back. We're trying to win. And that means looking at what really happened and what really is going on in the country all around us. And things like 
the propaganda effect of having Democrats and having journalists out there saying that if you oppose this two trillion dollar bill, you actually don't want Americans to get a fourteen hundred dollar check. We need to call that stuff out because you and I can sit here and say, oh, what cheap nonsense. That's not true. And Republicans wanted two thousand dollars. By the way, Mitch McConnell. Oh, what a disaster with the opposing $2,000 right before the Georgia Senate election. What idiocy. Yeah, don't worry. We're going to criticize Mitch McConnell here plenty, too. But here's a New York Times reporter talking about the $1,400 checks. And this is this is what the sheep will bleat in unison when anyone tries to say, wow, Democrats just spent another two trillion dollars. This is getting out. of This is really out of control. Play five. Well, yeah, you know, they voted against your $1,400 check. He didn't want you to have it. So I don't understand the um, the political strategy here. I think perhaps they feel that by the midterms uh, in two years that uh, people will have forgotten and there'll be something else they're thinking about. I just don't understand uh, these votes. But uh, again, they will take credit for it and hope that people forget. But I think that is one reason you're seeing this big effort by the Biden White House. I mean, this is going to go on for a month. Biden's going to uh, Philadelphia this week or next week, and he's got the entire cabinet out and they are just it's just this blitz. They're going to delay the um, the uh, address to Congress by at least at least until April, because they're you know determined to sell this bill, which they are you know very pleased about. So again, I don't, I just I think the Republicans think that by 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 2022, the fall of 2022, people have forgotten about the bill and they can um, move on to something else. It is a mystery to me. Yeah, why they voted against your fourteen hundred dollar check? That's they're going to distill it down to that talking point. Even the Republicans wanted to do a, a check back in August. Here we are in March. Democrats, Pelosi leading the charge, refused to take action while people were suffering. While we went through the winter, the worst winter we had of COVID, right? Or, or the worst period of time, the worst 90 days was this, was this uh, winter. You know, it was December, January, February was the worst COVID uh, outbreak that we've ever, we've ever gone through. And we had all these businesses closed. We had people who were running down their savings. Their, and, you know, the problem is journalists have actually done pretty well during this. If journalists had all lost their jobs, if they couldn't continue to work, trust me, we'd all be hearing about the economic devastation. But you know who's been economically devastated by this? Individual small business owners. They're the ones who have been devastated by this. Restaurant owners, people that own stores and shops. Not Amazon. They're fine. Not the Washington Post, which is owned by the CEO of Amazon or the founder of Amazon. Now they're doing just fine. So of course they were willing to sacrifice you. They were willing to advocate for you to continue to shelter in place and wear two masks, wear five masks. Don't see anybody wash your hands, all that stuff because they were just sitting at home filing their reports, just echoing the propaganda of other corporate media outlets, you know, putting their, their garbage out there online, getting their paycheck as usual. They had their health care. They're fine. You know, ordering from Uber Eats and getting all kinds of exciting food because the journals all live in cities where there's a lot of food delivery options, of course. So the economic pain that has not been covered that the same way the economic pain of the destruction of businesses during the BLM riots, that was never a focus. And it's all narrative creation. That's what the media actually does. They're not telling you what's going on. They're telling you what's important in their minds for you to know and believe. It's a different thing. 
And uh, that's why the way that the public views this two trillion dollars that that Biden is spending, I know it's one point nine trillion, but you know we'll say two trillion. Uh, the way the public views that matters a whole heck of a lot because this could make or break the Biden administration. How this goes, what this does to the economy is going to be the difference maker. And, and you can already see it right now. I know it's a million. It's so far away to think about the midterm elections right now. But really, it's March. We're going to be in the summer before you know it. It's going to be the fall. We're going to be one year out. It's going to be an election year. That's how these cycles work in this country. You know it. I know it. And if they spend all this money and we start to see some real ill effects in the economy, some slowed growth, some continued hyper-regulation, COVID restrictions that are unnecessary, people are going to get really tired of this stuff. So they're going to latch, they're going to continue to latch on to the, oh, they voted against your 1400, you know, fine. Uh, We have to make the case that they could not, in a moment that cries out for adult leadership and bipartisanship, Republicans worked with Democrats five times last year. Democrats said, screw you, Republicans. This is our opportunity to get whatever we want. That was what they did. Absolutely. As Senator Warnock said yesterday, thank God for Georgia. We would not have passed this legislation had we not won these two runoff victories on January 5th. So for anybody who ever doubts that elections have consequences and that voting matters, the thousands of dollars of economic relief that working families are about to receive, the hundreds of billions of dollars for the public health effort and to reopen our schools, the most progressive economic relief package passed in generations by the U.S. Congress. Zero percent of the tax credits and stimulus checks going to the top one percent. Promoting economic recovery by getting help directly to working class and middle class people would not have been possible had folks not turned out in record numbers in Georgia in early January. That's the beauty of our democracy. The people's voice is what counts. The people demanded this economic relief. Georgia voters demanded this economic relief. We've delivered this economic relief. Now it's time to pass voting rights measures and to advance a bold and historic infrastructure plan. Oh, they're moving on to the next thing already. And I know we, we have to eat our peas sometimes. And that means understanding that the loss of those two Senate seats in Georgia. I told you when Trump was when Trump was declared, you know, the loser in the 2020 election. I said, guys, you remember this. I said, if we win one of the two Senate seats in Georgia, we're going to be able to hold the line. We're going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Right. It's not great. Obviously, I was bummed about what happened. Bummed putting a molly about the, the Trump loss. But but then we lost the two Georgia Senate runoff seats. In highly winnable races, you know, yeah, Kelly Leffler was not a good candidate, obviously. I mean, Purdue, I kind of thought would get it done, but nope. So, you know, the elections do have consequences. It is a true statement, and we're dealing with those consequences right now. This is the world that I was hoping, this is the America I was hoping we'd avoid by at least keeping a divided Congress with Republican control, but they're getting their way. So we make the argument against it. We've got to convince enough Americans. We have to get people engaged enough in what's going on that people like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, that, you know, people like Susan Collins up in Maine. Uh, Well, Susan Collins, a Republican, I know. But, you know, we got to get her to actually stay with the team here. But we got to get Joe Manchin uh, to make sure that he doesn't just go along with the left on everything. I mean, he's one of the most important politicians in the country right now, and he knows it. If they get rid of the filibuster, 
we've, we've got we've got big challenges and they're already giving us some sense of, of what they what they want to do. I've told you what the game plan is. You know that I'm good at seeing the next moves of my opponents and whether it's Dr. Fauci with all of his lockdown madness um, or what the Democrats are planning here. They've it, you know, it lines up with what Obama They're They're just it's like they put a big folder out. It's like you have, you know, Axelrod and Valerie Jarrett have taken the folders out of the dusty file cabinets of, you know, Obama 1.0, Obama 2.0. Right. The first of the first and second terms. And they're saying, here you go. And the people around Biden, his handlers, the Biden team are going, OK, this is what we do now. OK, this is the next move. And they're executing on it. I know they're authoritarians and they're they're, you know, leftist, woke lunatics and all that. But they do know how to execute on their totalitarian plans. And that's what they're doing. And the next move, as I've said to you, is amnesty. This is where they're going. Here's Democrat from Georgia, Ossoff, talking about it. Play 12. Look, the right way to handle immigration has been well known to be the right way to handle immigration for 20 years. It's comprehensive immigration reform with a path to legal status for those who are here without proper documentation and otherwise follow the law and substantive efforts to improve border security. There's a bipartisan consensus among the people that that's what we need, just like there was a bipartisan consensus among the people that we needed to pass this stimulus. Ordinary Americans know what's right and what's needed. It's up to politicians in this building and this town to get it done. And it's up to politicians in this building and this town as well to pass the kind of infrastructure bill that will leave a mark for a century, modernizing our economy, getting our electric grid to 100% carbon-free electric production, getting our vehicle fleet 100% electric. We can make history in the next 18 months with a massive infrastructure package. We need to get it done. We should look at getting it done this summer. They're moving forward on all this. Progressive transformation of America is underway, using COVID as the springboard, the emergency to justify whatever they want. And we have to hold the line against it. President Biden has made clear from day one that he wants to change our immigration system. Doing so means truly building back better because we can't just undo four years of the previous administration's actions overnight. Those actions didn't just neglect our immigration system, they intentionally made it worse. When you add a pandemic to that, it's clear it will take significant time to overcome. We must build a better immigration system that reflects our values as Americans, enforces our laws, safeguards public health, and moves away from cycles of irregular migration. Made it worse. Made it worse. Ambassador Jacobson says there about the Trump immigration approach. Interesting, considering there's a huge crisis on the border that is clearly of Biden's making right now. But remember this, Democrats have a different idea in mind of how this should how this should conclude than you and I do. Let's bring in our friend Ryan Gurdusky now. He's the author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution and a political analyst who knows what's going on across the board. Ryan, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. So I'm viewing this as as the, the next big move for Democrats. I mean, they're saying this pretty clearly and loudly is immigration. When, when you look at, at the way that they're positioning this, they tried this before, the Gang of Eight bill, and that, that was a fail. And it was a fail because people got wind of what was happening, and all of a sudden popularity of that really turned, and Republicans were... You know, that that was a a shift, it seemed, 
from what was going to be a done deal. How do you see this playing out, this this move toward amnesty? Well, the, the bill that Joe Biden has been supporting, that's now the House bill and apparently the Senate bill by Bob Menendez, um, has got no Republican co-sponsors so far. Uh, and in fact, Republicans who originally supported the Gang of Eight amnesty, I think there's only really two left, which is just... Um, it's just Lindsey Graham and, and Marco Rubio. Um, of those, they both said they cannot support this bill because there's, I mean, even Lindsey Graham, who's as weak on immigration as anyone could possibly be, he's basically a Democrat. Uh, he said there's literally nothing, there's no board enforcement in the bill. It's, it's just to give me the Democrats. It's a Democrat wish list. Um, and that's, that's problematic for them to try to get it across the board. They can't even get actually passed in the House right now. Nancy Pelosi said she doesn't have the votes to get it passed in the Democratic-controlled House. So that kind of tells us where we are right now on 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 the bill. I'm more concerned what's happening on the actual border at this point, because, I mean, by May, estimates are that we're going to have the biggest humanitarian crisis on our border not seen since uh, the early 2000s of, of, the, of George W. Bush's first term, where there were there's probably going to be close to 100. Or there's over 100,000 people a month coming now. There'll probably be close to 250,000 people coming a month. By the end of by the end by the beginning of the summer, um, it's a complete disaster. And Joe Biden has gutted all of the safeguards President Trump put in place uh, to stop immigration. A lot of immigration hawks were really not, uh, you know, didn't love that Trump didn't complete the wall, that he, you know, never got never got full reductions to immigration like he promised, never got a merit based system. However, he did create safeguards for illegal immigration. He created safe third country agreements with other Central American countries. He created the Remain in Mexico policy, which ended catch and release uh, policy that had been plaguing America for 20 years. He ended that. All of those policies are basically gone right now at a time when we still have the coronavirus. I mean, it's gone down substantially, but there are there are new strains forming in parts of the world, especially in Latin America. The EU and the UK have cut off airplane, uh, cut off flights to Latin America because of these new strains coming out. And Joe Biden has kicked the doors open to all these people. They're not getting COVID tested, and they're they're being um, sent into the country, and then they're being released at bus stations across the Southwest. It's a recipe for a disaster. Ryan, it doesn't seem like this is going to get any better though, because Democrats, from what we've seen so far, their only issue with this is they don't have enough people to, you know, process, meaning bring them in, feed the feed those they're crossing illegally. Everyone needs to understand that they're not showing up at ports of entry because they just want to show up. If you go to a port of entry, it's almost like you go to the DMV. They only take a certain number on a certain day. And so they're they're and they don't want to wait in line. So they just walk across the border. They claim defensive asylum. You're supposed to claim asylum at a port of entry. People also don't know that. They say once they've been caught illegally crossing, oh, by the way, I want asylum. And they usually say they are fleeing violence in, in their home country. And then they go through this process of, you know, getting their basic biographical data taken. They're held for a period of time. They determine what they're going to do with them next. They usually let them into the country. The Democrats aren't saying we want to stop this and send people back. They're just saying we need to get more people down there so we can get the illegals in faster. Yeah, no, it's completely divorced from reality. I mean, the CNN poll released yesterday found that immigration and this is not the only poll, but this is the most recent one found that immigration is the most unpopular issue for Joe Biden. He's now down, uh, I think, double digits among registered voters in the country on the subject of immigration and what's going on on the border. Um, And it's not getting better. Uh, and, and they have no answer to it. And at this point, the only solution for Republicans, the immediate solution, you know, these attorney generals 
um, across the Southwest in Arizona and Texas and in other parts of this country in Florida, they all need to be suing um, to get nationwide injunctions of him repealing Trump era immigration executive orders. I mean, they, that's the only solution that we have in the immediate in the immediate future, because th- this is this is part of his ideological agenda. Remember, Joe Biden was moderate during the campaign on many, many issues. He was not going to do Medicare for all. He was not going to he was not going to gut certain institutions, uh, you know, in the left. He was never centrist at all on immigration. He was always one of the most radical people. He was one of the people who raised his hand saying, I want free health care for illegal aliens. He, this is Joe Biden's border crisis. He sat there and has enabled this. He got protections of the Trump era, Trump era protections, and he is sitting there and promising them either amnesty and free health care. It is a recipe for disaster, and it's only going to get worse as the immigration debate continues. Now that the coronavirus package is done, and um, now that um, and now that the border surge is happening, I mean, it's 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 just going to get. It's going. It's a complete recipe for disaster. It's a humanitarian crisis, it's a national security crisis, it's an economic crisis, and with the coronavirus, it's a health crisis. We're speaking to Ryan Gerdusky, author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Uh, Ryan, give us a sense. Let, let's say they get to, uh, they get to a, a bill that is effectively an amnesty bill, right? They may call it a pathway, whatever it is. How do you see that? I mean, kind of war game out for us what that would look like from the electoral map perspective. And let's assume and this is a whole other conversation we'll get into right now. Let's assume it is about 12 million people that are that are covered under the amnesty bill. I think the number is substantially higher than that I have for a long time. But let's assume it's 12 million. What is that? What does that mean in terms of the, the chances that Republicans have to win national level elections? I was over. I mean, say goodbye to Texas. I say goodbye to Arizona. Say goodbye to Florida, say goodbye to uh, North Carolina. It's over. It's it's game, set, match. The whole country's California and enjoy. Uh, I mean, it's going to take a few years for that to happen because amnesties do take a couple of years and to get them all registered to vote. So maybe we'll have a few good election cycles. But at that point, we're whistling past the graveyard and it's just effectively over at that point. I mean, the, everyone keeps saying, oh, Trump did so well with Hispanics. Trump did so well. Yeah, Trump did so well with Hispanics. He got 37 percent. It's not a majority. He got 41% of Hispanic men or 42% of Hispanic men in Texas. Um, he did well in some areas, not well in all areas. And, and, um, and even in places he's surging, like Chicago or, or, or the Bronx, he went from having 9% to 22%. So is that a surge? Absolutely. Is that going to make the Republican Party viable with Hispanics? No. And everyone who's, and I wrote this in my, in my newsletter that's on my Substack. Uh, people say, oh, Hispanics, they voted because you know, they experienced socialism. They were against socialism. Yes, some Hispanics did. Colombians, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, Cubans. But you know who benefited the most from the surging Hispanic vote? Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, when he was a candidate running on socialism, was winning Nevada, California. He got very close to winning Texas, and it was only because of the heavy Mexican population. They don't have a negative opinion about socialism. They don't have a negative opinion. Um, it's, uh, other, other, other. Another. That's a vast majority, even still, of the illegal illegal immigrant population in the United States is still Mexican. I mean, there are a lot of Central Mexican, Americans Central, now, but Mexican, Central Americans, and Puerto Ricans, in pollings that have been done, have a very positive opinion on socialism. So if the idea is that they've that they've all left because of Maduro or they've all moved right because of Maduro, no, they didn't. They moved they moved right in the last election because of crime and because of the issues of Black Lives Matter and colorism in the Hispanic community. 
That is why a lot of them sat there and switched their vote in the in from 20, 2016 to twenty twenty. That is not going to always be the issue, and it is not, and they they are not going to be catapulted to move right on on economic issues. They just don't believe in it. It is a recipe for. I mean, we will be debating between Nancy Pelosi's version of the Republican Party, Democratic Party, and Chuck Schumer's version, and that's all we'll have left from from there on. How do we stop it, Ryan? How can it be stopped? Well, I think it should be stopped in the House. Remember, Democrats have a very very narrow margin in the House. I think that the I think I mean they're already talking about watering down to just a DACA amnesty, which would be bad, but it wouldn't be as nearly as bad as a full blown amnesty. Um, but uh, it has to be stopped in the House. You have to get the the Democrats who uh, barely won their districts um, in in or or they or they exist in Trump districts. People like Golden from uh, Maine. Um, he's in a Trump district. Uh, the woman outside Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, I can't remember her name off my head. She, but she's in a very moderate district. She would have to vote against it. And I think that they are, uh, and even even people, even even Hispanic Democrats on the border, uh, uh, Henry Kuehler and Vincent Gonzalez, um, who are been raging against Biden over the border crisis, they'd have to sit there and stop it as well. And I think it needs to be put in the context of at a time of a border crisis, signaling an amnesty is probably the least responsible thing that you could do, especially given that opinion polls as of late as the summer said a, a, major, a super majority of Americans want to spend all immigration to get a handle on the coronavirus. And with, with new strains coming out of Latin America, I mean, we're going to sit there and, and, and create a worse situation at just as we're getting out of this entire thing. Ryan, before we let you uh, get back to where is your Substack, by the way? How do people subscribe? Uh, you can it's on my Twitter account. Just do Substack Ryan Gerdusky. Substack Ryan Gerdusky. Yeah. Ryan's stuff is really worthwhile. You should subscribe. Uh, highly recommend it. But uh, just tell us the latest. Uh, give us a minute or so on the latest with the Lincoln Project, because you gave the first push that got the boulder rolling down the hill to squash those jerks. So what's going on now? Right. So the, the Lincoln Project, there was a big story out in the New York Times by Maggie Astor, who's been a fabulous journalist on the entire story. Um, saying that they continue to plan on moving forward with their Lincoln Project media story, the media project. They're trying to create a billion-dollar media empire. They have half a million donors that donated to the Lincoln Project throughout the 2020 campaign. And they're hoping that despite the, despite the now credible allegations of sexual harassment, of pedophilia um, done by Lincoln Project co-founder John Weaver, and the fact that other co-members knew about it and covered it up, they believe they still have the people willing to donate to sit there and make a billion-dollar fortune. And basically, the story in, in the New York Times showed that Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, and, um, and uh, Galen, uh, Galen, uh, Galen Reed, I believe his name is, uh, sat there and, um, and knew about it. And they were always plotting to use this as a way to make millions of dollars. And they made, I think, $27.5 million in 2020. Um, uh, so they, it's, it's all a grift and they're planning on moving forward and they think that hiding up for pedophilia and sexual harassment doesn't, doesn't mean anything to them. Get a copy of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution by Harlan Hill and Ryan Gerdusky, our friend Ryan Gerdusky. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Do you have a message problem? Well, I would say that in the last administration, we had a morality problem and uh, children were being pulled from the arms of their parents and kids were being set, uh, sent back on a treacherous journey. And that's not the approach of this administration. So certainly we understand that means there will be more kids who are crossing the border. We made a policy decision that that was the right humane step to take. You know, if you're talking about morality, 
Got to say, what about the morality of lining the pockets of the cartels by encouraging people to break our laws and come here illegally? What are the morality of kicking open the border so that more lethal opioids, fentanyl and carfentanyl and heroin, whatever, can come across the border poisoning our our Americans, especially in a year of the highest ever overdoses, over 80,000 in 2020. So what about the morality of all these things? No, Democrats, once again, their their first impulse is to give things to people that don't mean anything to them as individuals, right? They, they like to be generous with your tax dollars, generous with, you know, with the sovereignty of this nation and, and willing to sacrifice it because it makes them feel good. A little bit of virtue signaling means a lot more to people on the Upper West Side and in, and in you know, Santa Monica uh, than it does people that live in places where they're actually going to have to compete with newly arrived illegal immigrants for jobs. You have to deal with what that means for the, the resources, the state resources in that community. You know, it means a lot of overcrowding of public schools in some areas. English as a second language uh, training that's going to have to get funded and all. I mean, there are things that come with all of this, you know, and, and ultimately you say, well, if there's no problem with any of it, why not just be honest about the fact that we should have an entirely open border? If there's no downside to illegal immigration, and this is what I want you to remember, if there's nothing bad that comes from illegal immigration, why don't we have Democrats advocating for unrestricted immigration in the United States across our southern border? Why not just say that then? You see, they can't have it both ways. It can't be that any criticism we make of illegal immigration is wrong and racist and awful and bad. It can't be that. And uh, and there is a downside to immigration, right, that they won't talk about. Well, hold on a second. You said any criticism is bad. And if there's no downside, why aren't you in favor then of unrestricted illegal immigration? So if they've said that you can't criticize it because it's all good, it makes the country better. We're a nation of immigrants. They work harder than Americans. All the things that we hear all the time. If that's the truth, then why not just say, yeah, we should have an open border. You see what I'm you see what I'm saying? There, there's a logical flaw in what they're doing or there's there's a there's a fallacy of of um, logic here, which is that it, it it is it flows from the following. If you do not believe there's any problem with this, what's going on at the border other than we just need more resources there. Well, then why not just say this is the way it should be all the time. If people coming from Honduras and El Salvador because they want a better economic opportunity and they don't want to have to wait and go through our immigration system as it normally is. If that's great and makes America a better, richer country that's better for all Americans and there's no downside. Well, then why isn't that just the policy? You see, it is de facto the policy the Democrats want, but they won't be honest about it because ultimately a lot of people sit around and say, hmm, so I guess we shouldn't have an immigration system then. Once you start to poke at this, it all falls apart. Once you start to ask questions that, of course, they, the media will never ask people like Joe Biden, fundamental questions about really what kind of nation we're going to be, what kind of country this is going to be, then they don't have answers. And they just yell at you and say, oh, that's racist and that's awful and how dare you and all, all the other stuff they always do. The usual moralizing in place of an actual argument. That is where the Democrats go on this. That is their 
approach. But I just want you to note that they can say that the previous administration had a morality problem, but there's a lot that's immoral about the lawlessness that Joe Biden has created and the Democrat Party is embracing here. A lot of people suffer on both sides of the border when we have anarchy and lawlessness at our border. That's the truth. And the Republicans need to start making that argument much more forcefully. Poso is in the house. Our friend Jack Posobiec of One America News. He is covering everything going on with the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, as well as the continued state of uh, siege in D.C. from the coming QAnon coup. That's never actually going to happen. And everybody knows it. But Jack Posobiec is with us now. Poso, good to have you, sir. Agent Buck, always a pleasure, my friend. Doing my thing. Let's get to it, man. What is going on at this stage of the Chauvin trial? You're following the jury selection process very closely. What are some of the key takeaways and things we're learning from how this is looking so far? Well, the key takeaways in this are very interesting because a lot of people know, obviously, there's been a ton of media exposure on this case, probably the most high-profile murder case in the U.S. in recent history. Uh, So it really does all come down to the jury selection. This is the most critical phase of the trial because the jury's composition will determine whether or not the uh, decision, the verdict, the final verdict goes along with the evidence that's been presented in the case or the emotionally driven media narrative thanks to a viral video that's gone out. So and everyone, I think, kind of knows this on both sides, by the way. So you're seeing defense lawyers trying to get everyone possible they can up there who says they believe in innocent before guilty they believe in following evidence they believe in following uh the the procedure the rule of law due process the prosecutors of course are trying to strike anyone that they feel has uh, a positive view of blue lives matter they actually struck someone yesterday from the jury who said they believe all lives matter should be what everybody believes the prosecution which is of course led by keith ellison uh, we all know him and his famous Antifa support uh, for their book has said that they struck that they don't want jurors who believe that all lives matter. But the really interesting thing, Buck, that I've got to say, though, is that almost all of the jurors, the prospective jurors that have been called up so far. Now, they are being kept anonymous, even though this is being broadcast live. We're not seeing their faces. They even made sure that the covid plexiglass was moved so you couldn't see their reflection on the plexiglass. They are taking it seriously. You can hear their voices, though. And they are running the gamut from concerned to downright terrified. Remember, this is still the city of Minneapolis. This is the community that lived through the months of riots, the ransacking of the third precinct police station in Minneapolis that burned it to the ground. And they're thinking, what happens if I serve on this jury, the mob doesn't get the answer that they want, and I'm still living in this city? Right? We've got a situation now where they know that the police couldn't even protect their own precinct. Jacob Fry, the guy who runs the city, has been out protesting with them, was supporting Antifa in many cases. They don't have confidence that they are going to be safe, whether they're serving on this jury. But we've got to a place now that America hasn't been in uh, since the founding of the republic, where people are more terrified of the mob than they are interested in actually upholding the rule of law in the republic this is i mean there's that that phase phrase from you know star wars this is actually how democracy dies folks this is this is what you're looking at right here if these forces are allowed to come forward and if street justice is able to take the place of 
actual justice, then we lose it. It's as simple as that. Talking to Jack Posobiec of One America News. And Jack, what can you tell us about what is being called the George Floyd Autonomous Zone in Minneapolis? It's really amazing. I mean, going to that same point. So I, I went to Chaz back last year. I spent about a week in there undercover, you know, day and night filming, recording, turned it into a documentary, AntifaMovie.com, if anyone hasn't seen it yet. Um, had over a million views. But the autonomous zone for George Floyd, so the, this is the area outside that uh, CUP Foods, the, the store, sort of a deli convenience store, where all of this took place, where he passed that fake 20 and was called originally by uh, an Arab family that owns the place. And they've now, the city of Minneapolis has declared this essentially George Floyd Square. It's being run by BLM protesters and Antifa activists and and militants. They're not allowing people to come in. They're kicking reporters out if, in their words, if you're too white to be in here. And they've essentially set up another autonomous zone where just like in Chaz last week, we saw a shooting, another shooting. It was, uh, I don't believe it was fatal this time. I have to check that. But it's already become a complete lawless zone. No police, no uh, you know, emergency response is going to be very hard to get in there. And you've got people and businesses still living inside. What that does is, like just like we saw in Chaz, it's going to attract the criminal element because they will know that if you want to commit crimes, this is the place to go do it. Well, Jack, I mean, Jack, how could anybody have faith in the city of Minneapolis, which has already been put through so much, a police station burned to the ground last summer, uh, you know, businesses boarded up, ruined, destroyed after being burned and looted. And now we're, we're having the whole country watching this trial closely. It's the biggest trial in America right now. It's one of the biggest news stories in America right now, to be sure. And they, there is a zone, you know, we're supposed to believe that the barricades and fences and, and deployment of security personnel will keep the calm in Minneapolis. But there's already an autonomous zone in Minneapolis where police aren't going in. So how can anyone believe that there's real control? Yeah, that's exactly right. You've got a situation that goes down. Remember, this was the first city to already agree full wholeheartedly to defund the police. They're starting putting more money into these community service programs. They want to have social workers going out. Look, I'm for community service. I'm for social workers. I think that's great. Uh, my father worked in, in a, a mental institution at one point um, for about 30 years. Right? I think I think public services are important. Right? I'm not one of those you know, conservatives who say slash all that stuff. But at the same time, you need to provide basic law, order and security for the people of your city. This is the preeminent and most basic function of our government. The minute you uh, usurp that, you are breaking that's that's the social compact. You're, you're, this goes back to Locke, right? You're breaking the social compact with the citizenry and you're uh, infringing on the basic rights of the people. Jack, I, I want to know what your expectations are here. I know this trial is going to go on for a number of weeks and they're taking these preparations, but it seems to me like the mindset is already there's probably going to be riots and the media is going to say, oh, look, there are riots, but they're about social justice. So not a big deal. And and this comes right after we've seen one riot in D.C. on Capitol Hill on January 6th is the justification for a whole mindset shift from the Democrat Party. Right. And the bottom line is the American people are out there looking at this and they see, see there's a riot in D.C. There's riots in Minneapolis. There's riots in Chicago. There's riots you, everywhere you turn around at this point. Right. And so people are 
most people are saying, look, we don't care what's behind the riots. We just want them to stop. Right. And so you do also now have a mindset in the city of Minneapolis. And this is just my personal view that I don't know if you can find 12 people in that city who are going to be willing to look at the evidence in an impartial and unimpassioned, unemotional manner and decide this simply based on the facts and the evidence of the case. We've already seen the medical examiner's report that said no life-threatening injuries. We've seen the entire uh, cocktail pharmacy of narcotics, illegal narcotics, uh, fentanyl at uh, obvious fatal fatal levels to Floyd. One medical examiner saying that had, had he OD'd in his home, you know, we would have just labeled this an OD. And so... I don't know, though, if you're going to find 12 people who are going to be willing to go along with that and then still live in the city of Minneapolis. I mean, it strikes me as the perfect textbook classic example of a case where you would want a change of venue to some, you know, rural, even unknown area where you could conduct this case away from, obviously, the inflamed passions of the city. Do we know why hasn't there been a change of venue? Could there still be a change of venue? There could still be. um I've talked to some of the uh, uh, folks in the area who are more familiar with specific Minnesota law on that. There can be a motion um, before the trial phase begins for a change of venue. And it could that is a potential option for Chauvin's defense to play. uh, And some of the what we're hearing in the case, some of the testimony from these jurors and potential jurors about the safety could play into that. Essentially, it comes down to. They're trying to roll the dice, see if they can find people who believe in that idea of reasonable doubt on the jury. But if they don't get that, then they have another card to play. Well, you can also imagine, and we're speaking to Jack Posobiec of One American News, uh, for everyone who's joining us. You can also imagine, Jack, that if you're on that jury, even if you think that there is reasonable doubt for all of the charges, right, that it is not beyond a reasonable doubt on, on all these charges, uh, and therefore you would vote for for acquittal. But you also can make this moral calculation in your head that I don't think is a crazy one uh, that, you know, people might get killed and, and businesses and neighborhoods might get burned down if we don't actually get convict this guy on something. So then it becomes pretty easy, I think, even if you believe there is reasonable doubt to go for the the, the lesser charge, which I believe is sort manslaughter at this argument. point. Yeah. Right. The greater this will do a greater good for more people if we go on with this. But then again, Buck, that goes back to the social compact issue. Right. You know, how are we running our country then? If, if that's what we keep the decisions we keep making, do our laws actually matter? You, oh, of course. Well, I'm just saying I think it's going to be tough to find a jury that has uh, people that can see this clearly with. Buck, let me let me tell you, there was a potential juror. She was struck by the judge. But something that she said, it, and it, it just shocked me, she said, I don't believe, I don't believe in innocence before proven guilty. She said, I don't believe in that, and I certainly don't believe in that for Derek Chauvin. I mean, that flies in the face of everything America stands for. It's amazing to me, Jack, also, how the media, this story got so much attention and coverage, but there are only a handful of places where they will even publicize that the the actual autopsy of George Floyd shows that the cause of death was not asphyxiation or strangulation. People don't know this, but we've, this is already a fact. It's already out there. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, in any other case, if it didn't have that viral video attached to it, if it didn't have, you know, sort of the racial element attached to it, the law enforcement a- a- angle attached to it, 
people would have looked at the autopsy it would have come out and they would have said oh well you know what that's what actually happened it turns out that there wasn't um, any life-threatening injuries they weren't able to identify injuries to the neck so therefore you know it's, it's just kind of one of those tragic terrible things obviously nobody wanted this to happen i'm sure derek chauvin didn't want this to happen none of george floyd's family wanted this to happen nobody wants this to happen but it is something that happens and you do actually have one juror and i will add i'll throw this out there who testified and is seated on the jury that he said he didn't have a positive view of Chauvin. However, that if George Floyd had complied with the officer's instructions, he would probably still be alive today. Jack Posobiec, everybody, go check him out at One America News. Follow him on social media. Mr. Poso, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it as always, Agent Buck. I think we've overdone it. There are no uh, serious, I just checked early this morning, there have been no serious threats against the Capitol. Uh, I think we're way overreacting to the current need, and much like the $1.9 trillion, looking back at what happened January 6th, rather than where we are now. I'm extremely uncomfortable with the fact that my constituents can't come to the Capitol with all this razor wire around the uh, complex. Uh, it reminds me of my last visit to Kabul. Mitch McConnell saying it reminds him of Kabul to be at the Capitol, and I, I can understand why. I mean, this is it, the whole thing is so outrageous. It's it's so absurd and we all know it. But Democrats like the optics of this. They like being in a position to pretend that they're there. See, it's it's all part of the victim mentality. They're under siege. They're under threat. The Republicans aren't under threat the same way, of course, not not according to the Democrat narrative here. But Democrats are under siege. And therefore, whatever extreme actions they have to take are justified to deal with that threat, too. You can't criticize them. You can't say anything mean about them. That's basically the same thing as violence. That's what they always say, right? That, that you're, you're putting them at risk, right? You're putting them at risk. You're actually creating uh, a, a physical risk for Democrats when you, when you call them out, when you disagree with them. Notice that, that it all comes back to you're not allowed to have different opinions. You're, you're not allowed to disagree with them. Somehow they create an endless number of these different frameworks for understanding, frameworks for discussion, where at the end of it all, it's you can't challenge them. If you do, it's it's violence. If you do, it's it's creating uh, harassment against them. You know, we've seen this where I, I know uh, Tucker Carlson has done a few segments now on on a New York Times reporter who, you know, is clearly drinking some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the victimology elixir and believes that this is a way to advance her career by saying that she's endured so much harassment. You know, these journalists, I'm sorry, they go around and they'll ruin lives on a whim. They'll ruin other they'll ruin other people in media, usually conservatives, if they can, on a whim. No problem with that. I mean, Rush Limbaugh, the greatest, of course, and, and we miss him every day. His his formulation of them as the drive by media is is brilliant because it's so accurate. They just go on by, you know, brrr, just, you know, fire off a bunch of rounds. Whoever they hit, they hit. And then they just move on down the road. They don't care. And we're supposed to think that journalists are, are the great truth tellers and are defending the Republican and all this other stuff. It's just not. We all know it's nonsense. But this is what you have with this new radical Democrat administration, their, their agenda, what they're trying to accomplish here. And the journos are all on board for it. This is what they want. I mean, Senator Kennedy down in Louisiana, here's what he says about 
what it's like to be part of the Biden administration. Play 17. There seem to be two main characteristics to serve in President Biden's cabinet. Number one, you've got to worship at the altar of climate change. Uh, The people that he's nominated don't see climate change as a discrete scientific problem. They see it as a religion. And number two, it it appears that at least most, if not all, of his nominees are obsessed with race and gender and sexuality. It is a, a top priority Uh, item for them but what they say which is fascinating is that we're the ones fighting the culture war here's seth meyers allegedly a comedian play six the republican party and conservative movement have turned entirely to nonsense culture war bs because they have nothing else to talk about they don't have a convincing criticism of the democrats massive covid relief bill because it's overwhelmingly popular even with their own voters 75 percent of americans and 59 percent of republicans said in a new poll that they support the bill so remember that when people complain it's a partisan bill, they're only referring to elected Republican officials not voting for it. It's popular among voters from both parties. It's a historic achievement that will, among other things, fund vaccinations, send thousands of dollars directly to the vast majority of American families and cut child poverty in half. What a little what a little snide propagandist he is, isn't he? Not even funny, not even talented. Ugh. Coulter time and Coulter, 13 time New York Times bestselling author, Great hits like Godless and Guilty and Treason. She is now with us to talk about her latest column at AnnCoulter.com. Ms. Coulter, great to have you. Good to talk to you, Buck Sexton. I want to discuss the justice system we have, which is a two-tier justice system for woke Democrats on the one side and then Republicans or anybody associated even vaguely with them on the other. I know you wrote about that this week. But for, first, I, I don't know if you had a chance to see or if, if you've heard about this Miseducation of American Elites article. I was talking about it right before we went into the, the commercial no. uh, break. But it's just about how the most woke, uh, the woke training that's going on now in the most elite schools, places like Dalton and Horace Mann here mm-hmm. in New York City. And here's a quote. Physics looks different these days. We don't call them Newton's laws anymore, an upperclassman at the school informs me. We call them the three fundamental laws of physics. They say we need to decenter whiteness and we need to acknowledge that there's more than just Isaac Newton in physics. And it's like a, it's like beyond parody at this point. I know. Boy, that's a way to make learning fun. <laughs> the three laws of physics. Unbelievable. Um, I, just, I know. I know. I know. I just um I don't know. I think it's cultural appropriation for people to to benefit from the laws of physics. We should dismantle everything that is that has been created, all knowledge we know, um, thanks to Newton, because he was a white man. Well, you know, I, I saw there was this trending for a while recently. Math, you know, it was like hashtag math is racist. And I assumed it was a, a a parody or that people were trying to make some kind of a point. But no, there's actually there's actual teaching instruction material for math teachers that specifically say that that focusing and I'm not making this up. It is funded by, in part, the Gates Foundation, by the way, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Wow. Really, really, really amazing. Yeah. There's actual instruction out there that says things like focusing on the right answer can be a form of uh, of f- uh, over focus on whiteness in mathematics. 
which is amazing to me, too, because I know that Stuyvesant High School, which is a very math and science heavy school, is 70 percent Asian. Yes. No, it's funny. In all of these woke discussions, Asians are just completely cut out of the equation. It's as if we are still, I don't know, 1950s, 1960s America. You often don't hear about Hispanics. They still act as if there are only two racial groups in America, black and white. Um, I guess the Asians really complicate um, the arguments about, for example, the SAT and other standardized tests being being culturally biased. We must throw them out. It's white supremacy. Only white people do well. Well, Asians Asians do better on math than, than white people on the standardized tests. So I well, think we need to go get get back to the drawing board on making sure this just promotes white people. Whether it's whether it's in Boston, they had this issue where they got rid of what are essentially gifted and talented track classes or here in New York City with the test for Stuyvesant High School, the elite public school that's just a test. Every two years, I'd say, there's some movement to say, this is wrong, it's racist, it's white supremacy. And then the word gets out, well, hold on a second. If if it's a perpetuation of white supremacist culture, why is 75% of the school Asian-American, including a lot of Asian-American immigrants, first-generation immigrants, people whose parents don't even speak English, and they are, you know, 75% of Stuyvesant High School. Anyway, that, that's, that's one issue. It really we- is, sounds like this is all being cooked up by, um, you know, the KKK, not only to describe math and perfectionism and getting the right answer. No, that's, that's what white people do. We don't do that. I mean, that... It, it, when you hear the woke lingo, it is it is largely indistinguishable from the Klan. Um, and I don't know. I just think the other thing is uh, being good at math isn't the most important thing in life. <laughs> there are other really important qualities and a lot of ways to make the world a better place and and succeed and have a great life. Um, never, never knowing how to do algebra. Um, sorry for any any parents of seventh graders listening to this right now. Smoking is fun, and you really won't need algebra for the rest of your life. Um, I'm, I mean, I guess it's it's an interesting learning exercise, and you should take algebra. Um, but 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 this obsession with saying um, no algebra, physics, it's it's the the white man's world. Um, I don't know. I think, I think, for example, um, you know, entertainers and athletes not only make more money, but there isn't a physicist alive who wouldn't prefer to be an entertainer or athlete. Well, this is like how, the STEM... how much are physicists making phys- physics PhDs making these days. Right. Well, there's always this focus also on, on STEM, and, and this even comes up in the gender issue. You know, STEM inequality and in the STEM fields and everything. I sit around I'm like. Guys, I hate to be the one that breaks this, you know, breaks the news to people, but you know, most people that work in like mechanical engineering aren't sitting around lighting their cigars with hundred dollar bills. Like, you know, it's really not not everyone's fighting. You know, some people are good at this, some people aren't, and that's cool. But it is what it is. But I, I want to give you a chance to tell everybody about your your piece here, rule by left wing lunatics, because one thing that we keep seeing is, you know, when it comes to Antifa and and these other groups out there. They do criminal stuff, awful stuff all the time. And if you just wait long enough, it always kind of gets faded out, plea bargain, nothing really happens. They yeah. are talking they are treating they they are treating people who trespass on the grounds of the Capitol, which is illegal, and I understand that. They are treating trespass like people were were uh, engaged in a mass a mass assassination attempt. That's what they're doing. 
Yes, and contrast that with, um, <laughs> with um, for example, the St. Louis couple um, who, who were concerned about people trespassing, certainly as violent as the most violent of the Capitol Hill trespassers, on, at, at their personal home where they were alone. They were not surrounded by Capitol Hill police. They did not have offices to go to. It's their home. Um, and they brandish guns and they're being prosecuted, um, you know, like they're Ted Bundy. Uh, I, I mean, looking at all this, I couldn't, it, it really should have been a full chapter in a book. I had to keep slicing this column away. I'd like to compare it a little bit more with how Antifa is being treated. Um, so I just have to make a quick reference to Andy No's book, Unmasked, um, which does have all the details. I mean, arson, attempted murder, um, violent assault, burning down precincts. Uh, and 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 in city after city, the Antifa or Antifa friendly, um, sympathetic BLM types, they get if they get arrested at all, they are immediately released, and that's it to go to go commit another arson to throw whatever happened to the two lawyers who threw the Molotov cocktail um, into a police car, torching the police car to the ground. Two lawyers right here in Brooklyn. I promise you, Buck Sexton, they will not serve time. They will certainly not be. I mean, they were released, by the way. I know this much about what's happened to them. They were released. Um, allegedly, um, they were recently often to, offered a plea deal. So I think we're heading to me being right on them not serving time. But the main point of my column, and I do recommend people read it, is the truth about um, what happened after Gavin McGinnis um, gave a speech at the Metropolitan Republican Club. You've probably given speeches there. I certainly have. It's a fantastic, beautiful, historic club, 83rd on the Upper East Side, Um, lovely crowd. He was giving a speech there, and the night before Antifa comes and, and spray paints the door, smashes one of the historic building's windows, glues the lock shut, says this is a warning. 80 Antifa showed up the next day. And, and you know, if you've been to these events, um, I always have an event there when, when I have a new book come out. Um, they're lovely people. They're, 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 they're all ages. There are kids. There are, there are elderly people. They're obviously, you know, not that also. There are women. There are children. And, and you have 80 masked Antifa standing there, clearly planning to do damage to the attendees at a Gavin um, McGinnis speech. But luckily, the Proud Boys were there. Um, I won't go through the whole story, but the way four, two of those Proud Boys are now serving four years in prison for defending themselves when Antifa circled around the block... Um, Proud Boys were following the, the police's instructions. Police sent Proud Boys over to Park Avenue, Antifa to Lexington. Antifa comes sneaking around trying to sucker punch the Proud Boys, throw a bottle of urine at them, um, and to see how, how the, needles to say, not one Antifa was prosecuted. Um, they followed four one years, of the, I mean, I know enough about this. I've got friends that work in the that's DA's like a office murder here conviction. in New York. Four years is a long time to get for no, there were no serious injuries from what I understand. I mean, that, that, that's a make a there statement. There were no, kind of. they, they couldn't use evidence of injuries because they didn't have any Antifa there. The Antifa who, who started it, who showed up at the conservative event, it wasn't Proud Boys going to, you know, an Antifa speech as if they give speeches. Um, it wasn't the Proud Boys ignoring the police. This was an attack a sucker punch by by Antifa, and they ended up getting their their butts kicked. Um, but but, but well, some of the Antifa who punched 
and robbed one of the attendees at, at Gavin McGinnis's speech, was arrested by the police. I, mean, I suppose I'm not laying this at the feet of the police, but it goes to Cyrus Vance's office, and, oh, yeah, we're not, we're not, we're releasing them and we won't be pressing charges for punching someone. We're someone for Coulter. a nice Upper East Sider who wanted to attend a speech. Um, and that plus the Capitol Hill, how, how they're being treated compared to Antifa. I just think you've you got to be very careful if you're a conservative living or traveling through a blue state. Because if you jaywalk, um, they'll call you a white supremacist and throw you in prison. I've, Anyone I've can been be telling friends and family this for a long time. And ever we're speaking to Ann Coulter, go to AnnCoulter.com for her latest column. And, uh, you know, I've always said this, you know, if you're a if you're a known conservative in any capacity and, you know, you get into a scrap on the street over something or you have some issue or whatever, you are not going to get a fair trial, actually, in New York City. I mean, I, I no, them, or I'm, I'm, or I'm, anything else. I mean, look at how Palm Beach treated um, the county of Palm Beach. Very, very liberal. The town of Palm Beach is not particularly, but the county is um, how Rush Limbaugh was treated. For having, for taking, being addicted to back pain pills. I don't know if you remember that one. Any kind of law, you really, the the left simply does not believe in the rule of law and fairness and treating like cases alike. You will be treated fairly if you are a liberal committing a crime in a red jurisdiction. You will not if you are a conservative in a blue jurisdiction. I just want to ask your your opinion on this, Sam, before we let you go, and that is because uh, I've been talking to friends of mine on the law enforcement side about this. It, it to me, it seems that it, with the Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, which the whole country is going to end up spending a lot of time thinking about in the weeks ahead, because this is going to be a, a this is going to be a big one. The Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, if he is convicted, um, there there will still probably be riots because then it's that the police force is racist and evil and killing black men in this country with you know and, and in a systematic fashion. And clearly, if he's found not guilty, there will be riots. So what exactly is justice supposed to be, according to BLM and Antifa on the left? Right. No, you're right. And I am worried that the jury, um, you know, much like like the, at least one of the Rodney King juries, um, after, after riots um, for an acquittal, um, that the jury will take that into account and think to themselves, well, I don't want riots in my town. So Derek Chauvin is just going to be, he's going to be another human sacrifice to the woke mob like Jake Gardner was, um, like these two proud boys serving four years in prison were. People just look at this, um, keep their heads down and think, um, thank God it's not me. Yeah, I think but the jurors are scared for themselves, by the way, too. I think that's a realistic, you know, they're going to get doxxed and people are going to know who they are. And they're, you know, you don't want to be in a jury that doesn't convict Derek Chauvin and people know where you live in Minneapolis. Yeah, they should probably have a change of venue for that. Why reason. did they? You, you're, you're a lawyer. And why, why would that seem so basic? Um... Has has that been decided? I would guess what I would argue if I didn't, if I were the prosecutor and I wanted to keep hold of it, what I'd argue is this is this has national attention and people are going to know about it wherever we have it. But that's not that's generally the grounds for a change of venue. You want a fair jury. But in this case, what what you and I are talking about, I don't know that this could be a grounds for for a jury to be moved is that if we have it here, um, they're going to riot. But maybe if we have it someplace else, the jury won't be afraid of the riot. 
Ruled by left-wing lunatics, everybody. That's what we're seeing in this country. Ann Coulter writes about it. Go to AnnCoulter.com. And thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Buck. Bye-bye. Why was the opposition so opposed? More important to know is why they were so quiet in their refusal. They know many of their own wanted this. They're making a different bet. Remember, these are the people who played to the denial of the pandemic. They're betting that they can still make people angry, divide, and therefore be a safe harbor for the hostile come election time. So they are going to be against everything Biden tries to do because they are opposing him. That's why they tried to pitch pandemic relief as you paying for them and their kids. What's the message there? Ugly and obvious division by deception. They only want a rescue plan for Dr. Seuss. Remember this day. This was the chance to make up for the pandemic denial that they enabled. Instead, they decided to double down, period. I mean, Bro Cuomo is not very smart, so we start with that. He's just not very smart. I mean, it's not a mean thing to say, it's a true thing to say. But is he really not smart enough to figure out that obviously the Republicans who have been begging for a COVID relief bill for about six, seven months now want to do COVID relief? They did five COVID relief bills before Democrats had the majority that they do last year. And that this is just an excuse for Democrats to lard in a bunch of things that they want that have nothing to do with COVID. Does he not know that? No, he's a propagandist. He's a Democrat activist pretending to be a journalist. That's all. It's very obvious. It's very obvious. And pandemic denial. What an ugly, stupid thing to say. The Republican Party hasn't denied the pandemic. The Republican Party created Operation Warp Speed to get the vaccine. The Republican Party was advocating for you know, PPE and using the Defense Production Act. You know, this is what Trump was doing, but they just lie and lie again. And then this this cheap shot about Dr. Seuss. No, I mean, he's he's at CNN and CNN's a bunch of, of big frauds who just want to make sure they get theirs. They get their paycheck. They get to be on their network. Nothing else matters. Whatever's happened to the country. And, you know, they don't care about the fact that in New York, uh, a private school, the Grace Church School, is putting out inclusive language guidelines now for parents, according to the New York Post, encouraging students to stop using terms mom, dad, and parents because the words make assumptions about kids' home lives. That's right. Don't say mom and dad. You might offend people now. Is this the country that CNN really wants everybody living in? You know, how much more of this insanity, how many many more of these slaps in the face do normal people, everyday folks, have to accept before we realize that there is a madness that has overtaken this country. The Grace Church School in NoHo, in a fancy, is a trendy part of, of Manhattan here in New York City, which goes from kindergarten through 12th grade, put a 12-page letter out with guidance. They recommend terms like grown-ups and folks. Don't say mom and dad. Don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to offend anyone. This is craziness, and normal people understand that. But the phonies at CNN continue with the propaganda on behalf of the Democrats. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call.
You know, producer Mark, I did a, uh, a, a Instagram live with my friends Jesse Kelly and Sean Parnell recently. And, and, you know, those are two great guys. We get along really well. And Sean Parnell is a great American. He's a friend of mine. And, you know, he gave me a recommendation for a show. So last night I'm with the Snow Princess. And we're just, you know, we, I finished all my work for the day. She finished all of her stuff for the day. And, and we're just trying to drink some tea because, you know, I'm a big tea drinker. Uh, coffee during the day, tea at night. That's how I roll. Black Rifle coffee, obviously. And, and I'm sitting there to, to drink my, my tea and watch something. We put on Your Honor, which has uh, Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, I think one of the greatest scripted television shows of all time. Correct. I think it's going to be pretty good. Sean Parnell told me that this was a great show. And, and um, I'm all excited. Well, I got to tell you, it's like, it's like ang- anxiety producing to watch. That's how bad it is. It's just the whole thing. I don't want to give anything away, but it's very tense, but it's there's no release in the tension. So you're just you're just like, ah, the whole time you're like, ah, something bad's going to. And I just sit here. I'm like, this is not entertaining or enjoyable. So I have to give Sean Purnell a hard time because he's 0 for 1 with me right now on TV, TV show recommendations. Yeah, but I, I've heard from a lot of other people that it's really good. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell the audience this is probably just a buck thing. And it's I know just probably people just a think. Yeah, people think that I don't like most things. Like that's the way. Like I don't like most music, stuff. and I don't like most stuff. I think that's unfair. You know, I think that's unfair. But I will say that then when I do like something, you all know it's really, really good. You all know it's really that's true. Really if good, you so. like something, we're like, wow, you yeah, actually exactly. like something. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're we're. I I don't know if if you have different feelings about your honor, but I'm telling the whole team this because. Give me a great show recommendation to watch. I mean, something that's really enjoyable to watch. All right. At the end of a long day, I want to turn on a show. I want to be entertained. I don't want to feel like I'm about to have a heart attack any second. Okay. I want to be entertained. Give me an, a, a, an enjoyable show to are you watch. Saying you that's, don't like thrillers? No, thrillers are okay. But the, th- the thing is, a thriller has to have a rhythm. You know, it has to, it has to, there can be tension, but then there, it has to sort of mellow out a little bit. And then there's tension. The, the thing about Your Honor is you're just like the whole time. You know what it reminds you of, actually? That movie you loved that I hated about the jewel, Adam Sandler, the jewel guy. Uncut Gems. Yes. Oh, well, then I have to watch Your Honor. I'm going to love it. Oh, my God. It's it's like that in terms of you're just there's anxiety the whole time. You, just you never get away. Breaking Bad, though. That is what Breaking Bad is. Breaking Bad goes, you know, there's peaks and valleys. I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, there's a lot of like stuff in the home and a lot of stuff with uh, Jesse where he's kind of being funny. This is your honor. There's no comedic relief at all. There's no chill time. It's all so you, you know what, Mark, you probably will like it. Now yeah. that I'm thinking about this, you will like it because the whole time it's like, oh, God, oh, God, what's going to happen? Like, oh, you know, the whole thing. I mean, uncut gems. I swear I had to, you know, I wanted to like uh, have a stiff drink right afterwards just to try to like relax a little bit. That movie is tense. Yeah, that's good. That keeps you interested the whole time. Oh, I don't know what's God, wrong with know. that. I don't know. It's stressful. Stressful experience. Do you know how much trouble I have finding a show that I'm not going to look at my phone at all during? I mean, a lot. It's difficult Be- nowadays. But I, I bet the audience also agrees with me that you would like The Boys, which is why I keep bringing it up. I, I bet they agree I promise I will me. watch it. I just, you know, sports, wife. Hey, oi, sports, oi, you know. You, you got you to gotta make some time, Producer Mark. Are there any sports even happening this weekend? Yeah, the hockey's on. When is the Stanley Cup? Just, uh, a couple months from now. 
Oh, I thought it was yeah, soon. We're like in the middle of the season. Yeah, all right. I thought I thought it was already playoffs. I don't know. Well, it usually on, so. would be the playoffs in about a month. Ah, so I'm not crazy. Before. It's yes. that delayed for the COVID. Okay, yes. I get it. I get it. All right, let's let's hear from the team. Let's see what everyone's got in their minds. And like I said, I am really, really hoping. Uh, Pretty smart. Can we check to see if we're getting some uh, Apple Podcast reviews and five star ratings? We're some getting a lot. I actually have a gripe with one. I'd like to what read. Is, what, I'd like to read a line off of the end of a review. Let's hear it. It's very nice. He says how much he loves you, and then at the I think it's a he. I'm not really sure. Uh, and they say the suffering he has to endure at the hands of producer Mark is quite disturbing, though. <laughs> That's how he ended the review. But it was five. Ah, uh, whoever it is, a very astute individual. You know, I just, you know? I just want to know what's suffering. Like, what am I doing you know? that makes Buck suffer? You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to be here, be the creative man. You're all like, hey, Buck, we have to actually hit our time clock properly for radio and hey buck we have to actually do the show every day you can't just be tired one day and say what about yesterday's show that one was good like that's what he means i'm an artiste producer mark see but if anything you would be suffering if you didn't do the show because people a lot more powerful than me would start screaming at you well that's i mean yeah 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 but but he but i get what he said i get what he said you know you're the guy. You're the guy who's. I'm. I'm out there. I'm trying to do Hamlet on stage, and you're telling me we got to get ready for opening night, or else there's going to be no butts in the seats to pay the bills. You know. But I'm the artiste. Sure, we can go with that. But yeah, in all seriousness, like we've gotten a lot of reviews, and thank you to everyone who's. Done well, it. thank you so much to everybody for that. We really, really appreciate it, and please keep it up because, uh, like I said, our audience for this show. Our audience for the show on podcast alone, never mind, we have more radio stations we've ever had. We're over 200 stations now. Over 200 radio stations across the country carry the Buck Sexton show. And we've been adding great markets like like uh, WIOD uh, uh, in Miami and WFLA in Tampa. And we've added, uh, we've added uh, KNRS in Salt Lake City. And we've obviously got Freedom 93.7 in Denver. We've, we've added these great stations. And we're actually about to add a couple of other great ones, Producer Mark. I can't tell you what they are yet, but the word on the street is we're getting a few more big, big ads coming our way. And we've added WORNYC. So, you know, we, we, we've got all these. And we've, over, we've more than doubled the podcast listenership every day of the show in 12 months. More than doubled. And so, you know, we really appreciate the momentum and it's because you're passing the buck. I mean, this is on you. I don't have billboards anywhere. I don't have a marketing budget. I don't have any of that. I, I just put out a billboards for that big of a head. Yeah, I mean, you can't fit it. So that's also a thing. Plus, you know, come on. I'm a, there's a reason I like vocal stuff so much. I, I like radio. I'm not trying to have my face plastered on. I, I didn't go the there. I just went with the size of head. Yeah, no, I know. But it's a big head. I but that's all. But that's all a part of it, too. But but I'm I'm really giving you all listen to this my thanks because it's because you who listen to this support what we do and tell people about it that the show grows the way that we have, we have no marketing budget I'm not you know I'm not a Fox News host I'm not a Fox News contributor so I I don't have that you know machinery behind me I haven't raised you know millions of dollars for like a nonprofit that's actually building up my personal brand every day or anything we just do this show. And because of the quality of the show, we grow and grow and grow. And it's because you who listen to this care and spread the word and appreciate and tune in every day. So we really owe you. It means a lot to us. So thank you for that. And, and if I could just ask, if you haven't yet, it, I think you can probably do it in 15 seconds in iTunes. Just give us five stars 
And if you have a moment to write, you know, a line or two, more is great, but a line or two review of why you listen to the show and what matters. And even if you make a snarky comment about producer Mark, as long as you give five stars, he's okay with it. Right, Mark? That is correct. Yeah. There we go. All right, Randy. A Buck Shields High. So my question is, when something happening in 10 years uh, a cri- is a crisis, and when it's too far away that we don't know to worry about it now, take global warming versus the Iran nuke deal. Global warming will reach a crisis level 10 years from now, so we must spend trillions of dollars to combat it. The Iran nuke deal allows Iran to get a nuclear weapon in 10 years, but apparently that's not a crisis. It's so far out there that we don't have to worry about it. I'd like to hear your thinking on the Democrats' two different viewpoints when it comes to happening, when it comes to something happening in 10 years being a crisis or when it is not a crisis. Love the show. I listen via podcast on iHeartRadio. Well, Randy, thank you. By the way, folks, when you write in for roll call, please do tell us, if you don't mind, where you listen. We love that. I mean, you don't have to do it every time because we've got some regulars who write in a lot. But if you tell us, if you listen on the iHeartRadio app, if you listen on on your local station, what the station is, we like giving giving shout outs and, and giving those uh, those great call letters for our affiliate stations, because also every affiliate, every radio affiliate across the country that carries the Buck Sexton show, they're making an investment in us. They're believers in what we're doing here. And we appreciate them. We appreciate that station, that station management and that audience. So uh, let us know if you would. Uh, Randy, as for the 10 years, uh, you know, 10 year Iran deal versus 10 year climate change. I, I can't give you a, an answer that is sensible because it's not a sensible position that they hold. It's whatever they want. It's it's emotion driven. The left views some things as as critical in a in a timeline of 10 years and other things as so far off that who cares based on whatever their whims, whatever their desires may be. So while I understand you're saying climate change 50 years from now, urgent, urgent problem now Iran getting nukes in 10 years based upon the Iran nuke deal, the Obama administration negotiated or having a pathway, a direct pathway to nukes. That seems like something that doesn't need any urgent attention. It's just a function of, you know, how they feel and what they want. There's no principle is what I'm trying to tell you. There is no there is no way that you can explain this that doesn't boil down to, well, this is what they want now. Because it's about what they want to focus on right now. And they'll make, they'll justify it however they have to. And that's, that's how it goes. Robert, hey, Mr. Sexton. Congratulations on an excellent series of podcasts and broadcasts. I noticed but haven't heard anyone mention that, that everything that President Trump stated in his campaign spots and at the rallies about what the dark side was going to do is coming true in a horrendous wave of terribleness. Also, there's absolutely none of the healing or the reaching out to the right, only more bashing. Note how Governor Ron DeSantis is the target as he's becoming more of a threat. The monster is turning its power against the next possible contender already. Shields high. I mean, Robert, thank you, first of all, uh, first of all, for your kind words about the show. And and as for your assessment, your analysis. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Trump told us that this was something that we should expect from the other side. He told us that. These were the kinds of things that they would do. To be fair, I was telling you that as well. And I think all of my predictions about what the left will do, I mean, they're, they're coming true because I know the nature and character of the left in this country. So I, I understand what their moves will be and I see them in advance. Um, and as for the way the monster, as you put it, is turning against Ron DeSantis, absolutely. 
they recognized DeSantis as a threat. They recognized that Ron DeSantis, because of his record on COVID-19 in Florida, his his true courage and leadership, uh, they want to try to take him off the off the chessboard right now. And uh, they're going to have their hands full if he decides to run in four years. Governor of Florida, man, Florida, you guys and gals are all very lucky that you got Ron DeSantis and not some of the other clowns running around. Roll call coming back as well. Uh, We've got Dave. Greetings, Buck and producer Mark. I'm writing today because I see a trend developing that I'm sure others have noticed also. Why is it that mask media seems to be the most prevalent among the 20 to 30 year old crowd? Nearly any time I see a person alone in a car or walking down the sidewalk by themselves, if they're in this age group, they're wearing a mask. The generation that is nearly immune from any severe complications from contracting COVID seem to be the very same people who are downright petrified of it. They're the first ones that will mask shame others, post mask selfies and want more government mandates. I have my own theory as to why they've been indoctrinated and completely brainwashed by the panic porn industry. I also believe societal and peer pressures to conform play a role. What say you? Am I missing anything or am I spot on or do you disagree? Love the show. Keep up the great work. Your show is the best part of my work day, except for the moment I clock out. Well, Dave, first of all, that's awesome. That's really high praise. Uh, Thank you. That really means a lot. I mean, it's to know that for some of you that are in a job and you can listen to this while you're working and it's something you look forward to every day, it honestly makes the endless hours of prep and reading and audio and sitting here and doing the show and having Mark put it out every day and all the things we're doing makes it all worthwhile. And I really mean that. So thank you, Dave. And yeah, you're, you're again, your analysis is is spot on here. I mean, the younger generation, if you're 20 to 30, you're if you're 20 to 30 and really anxious or worried about getting covid for your own personal safety reasons, not, you know, if you're taking care of your 85 year old you know, grandma with emphysema and you don't want to give it to her. I understand that's a little, that's different. But if you're worried about yourself and you're 20 to 30 and you have a normal functioning immune system, uh, you have been brainwashed. I mean, the panic porn has seeped into your mind because there's you are at less risk from this. If you're 20 to 30, this is clear in all the data. You're at less risk than you are from seasonal flu. So do you go around being terrified of the flu all the time? No, you don't. If you're in your 20s and 30s, and look, I. I got I have brothers up a few times on the show. I got wrecked by the flu five years ago, had a confirmed diagnosis, did the whole test and everything else. And it was like a week where I was I felt like I kept telling my family, I would like mumble to my mom or my dad on the phone. I feel like I got hit by a bus. That's what it feels like when you get the flu. But, you know, sometimes it's, you know, your number gets punched. It's no good. Producer Mark, when was the last time you had the flu? Do you remember? I shouldn't say this, but I don't think I've ever had the flu. Wow. And now I'm going to get it like tomorrow. Oh, God. Thanks. Well, luck, lucky you, man, because, yeah, when you have it, too, you, you know, you have it because you're like, well, maybe you tell yourself, maybe it's just a cold. Maybe it's just going to be a cold when the initial symptoms come on. And then when you start shaking and have the fever and you have the chills and you're like, not a cold anyway. Uh, but yeah, if you're 20 to 30 and you have a normal immune system and you're not taking care of elderly people or anything, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, let's get to Maureen. Hey, Baca producer Mark. I wrote you two. Uh, I wrote you two. A glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Even though I own this new iHeartRadio. Yes, Maureen. Thank you. Exactly. Even if you don't. Even if you're a radio listener, if you you know use your iTunes account, write us a podcast review on Apple Podcasts, please. It's it's a big help. We really appreciate it. Uh, so whoever's listening to this, that's a, it's an ask and and pass the buck, of course, too. Please get one person 
new person to listen on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I, too, really wanted a sea otter, lion, or bear cub or fox as a pet, so it's not that unusual to go exotic, but I was a California beach kid, um, not an adult in my 30s at NYC, a mere child of seven or eight when I wanted that. I had to lovingly be told that a lion or bear cub grows too big to play in our backyard and a bathtub is too small for an otter and a fox would smell really horrible. They do. They're actually quite pungent. So we had a little beagle pup and a fluffy kitten instead. Let me steer you in the cat and dog direction if you want a pet. Thanks for all you do. Well, Maureen, you're, you're no doubt correct. But one day I will send you very cute photos of my pet otter named Otto. That's it for today, everybody. Until tomorrow, shields high.